You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To speak the Bible does not always mean citations with footnotes, does not always come with a declaration that that's what my Bible says. Those with ears to hear will also find in the narratives of the four Gospels, echoes. Sometimes a character in the story will speak a phrase from a prophet in a conversation with a stranger. Sometimes the setting of a scene whispers stories from Moses or Abraham or moments even older. And sometimes a simple deed, narrated without ornament, will invoke one of God's mighty saving acts without even repeating a phrase. To hear such echoes requires faithful, disciplined listening, and that sort of listening is our challenge when we read Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, the new book by Richard B. Hayes from Baylor University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Hayes to the show, and I hope we have plenty of good Bible lore in store for you listeners. Thank you for coming on the show, Richard. Uh, You're welcome, and I'm glad to be talking with you today. Two concepts to which this book returns on a number of occasions, and, and phrases really, are the Encyclopedia of Composition and the Encyclopedia of Reception. What do those phrases mean in your inquiry, and what help do they offer a reader of the canonical Gospels? Uh, well, yes. First of all, I think probably, at least usually, the, the expression I actually use is Encyclopedia of Production. Ah, rather, very good. Rather than composition, although actually Encyclopedia of Composition may make the point clearer. Uh, but the, the terms actually come from the scholar, uh, literary scholar, Umberto Eco. Um, and the, but what they mean is actually pretty simple. When, when he uses the term encyclopedia, he's simply referring to something like the framework of cultural knowledge that the author brings to writing a text. And the Encyclopedia of Reception is the framework of cultural knowledge that a reader brings to the reading of the text. Uh, And of course, those are not always identical. Uh, One of the main points of my um, book is to argue or, or to demonstrate, I would say, to demonstrate that the authors of our four gospels are themselves readers of Israel's scripture, what we call the Old Testament, and that they have uh, a deep immersion in knowledge of those scriptures, so that that's part of their own uh, encyclopedia of composition or production that they bring to the writing of the texts. And one of the problems that many Christians today have in reading the New Testament is that we are not as deeply immersed in knowing the texts of the Old Testament as the gospel writers were, so that our encyclopedia of reception needs to be uh, supplemented, as it were, uh, by uh, recovering the knowledge of that original framework of knowledge that the gospel writers brought to telling the story of Jesus. So... um, I refer to this at several points in order to try to indicate what I think we have to recover out of the background uh, of of the storytelling that the gospel writers do. Is that a helpful explanation? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that yeah. uh, one of the calls, and I, I don't remember if you said it explicitly or if I'm just hearing echoes of haze here, but uh, <laughs> part of the call seems to be for those who preach to make the homily an occasion for deepening that encyclopedia of reception. In other words, to make explicit what the text of the gospel is able to assume. Yes, I think that's uh, that's very true. I think that is an important task for anyone who's preaching on these texts. Very good. Well, as we go today, I'm going to be shuttling back and forth between big interpretive concepts and particular passages of the Gospels that you treat well in this book. But of course, both will be involved in both kinds of questions. So here's where I want to start with a robust encyclopedia of reception in place. What sorts of echoes will the faithful reader hear when Jesus tells his disciples in Mark chapter 1 that they will be fishers of men? Right. Well, I'm interested that you picked that example because this is a, a place where I think that hearing those echoes of the Old Testament really significantly changes the way that we read this text. I certainly always grown up hearing this text as a summons for the disciples to follow Jesus in the task of evangelism, of, of bringing uh, many people into the church in the way that fishermen would go out and cast nets and bring in fish. But if you actually look at the way that image of fishermen catching people in nets is used in a couple of pretty significant Old Testament passages, it really works quite differently. Uh, it's, it's used as an image that describes bringing people in for judgment. Uh, for their sinfulness and iniquity and rebellion against God. Uh, maybe I could just quickly read two of the key passages that By I cite means. in the book. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is from Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 16 to 18. Uh, I'll, I won't read every word of this, but I'll bring out the key phrases. It, it's so uh, the, Here's Jeremiah's prophecy. I am now sending for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain, every hill, and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my presence, nor is their iniquity concealed from my sight. And it goes on, they've polluted my land with their idols and filled my inheritance with their abominations. So these images of the fishermen and hunters uh, indicate that uh, God is sending uh, prophets to pronounce judgment on Israel and to bring them to judgment before God. And the other passage that really is striking to me is from the beginning of chapter 4 in the prophet Amos. <clears throat> kind of a famous passage, actually. It says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and so on. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, the time is surely coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that if, if, those, if that's the background of the imagery of sending fishermen and catching people, uh, it suggests that Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom 
of God in Mark, it brings not just a word of uh, comfort, as it were, but also a word of judgment, that uh, the time has come when God is going to uh, put in the sickle for the harvest and, and bring people in to be judged, and that Jesus, uh, not unlike the early proclamation of John the Baptist, may have been summoning disciples partly to participate in that word of pronouncing judgment on an unrighteous people. Mm-hmm. Very good. I will, obviously, a full commentary or rehearsal of the Gospel of Mark is beyond what an hour-long podcast is going to do, and we've still got three more Gospels to talk about. But I want you to give us a, a big picture here for a moment. Tell our listeners how Mark uses subtle scriptural echoes to evoke both Jesus' God-forsakenness and the presence of God in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, this is a... Uh... As you say, it's a complex matter that would really require a pretty extensive reading of many different things in Mark's gospel. Mm -hmm. But I think it it really comes very much to a head in the story of the crucifixion in Mark's gospel. Um, Because Mark has, throughout the story, drawn on many different images to suggest that Jesus is Lord, that he's the one who has power over the sea and who will be seated at the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven, mm-hmm. and it, it, that he has power over illnesses and, and uh, you know, can walk on the sea and many different things that suggest his identity as the embodiment of God's presence. And yet when we come to the crucifixion in Mark's story, you have Jesus crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Which is, of course, um, exactly a quotation of the beginning of Psalm 22. Mm -hmm. And this has been something that has puzzled many interpreters uh, across time. But I, I think that it's it's clear that Mark intends us to read in in the story Jesus not only as the bearer of divine power, but also as one who enters fully into the human condition, uh, suffering and suffering even to death, and and this uh, remarkable cry of uh, abandonment in the hour of suffering, which evokes the psalm. I think it's important to say also that the the echo of the psalm is meant to evoke not just that one line from Psalm 22, 1, but the entirety of the psalm. Uh, and if you read the, the whole Psalm 22, the whole sweep of it, it moves from lament to a passionate plea for deliverance, and finally in the last 10 verses or so of the psalm, uh, an expression of praise and thanksgiving for deliverance. Um, And indeed, perhaps uh, an expectation that uh, there will be a resurrection, I think, in Psalm 22, verse 29. uh, Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. So I think all of that is evoked in a subtle way by 
Jesus cry from the cross, uh, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. A lot of times when I read people trying to deal with, especially Mark's version of it, uh, they seem, the tendency seems to be, I'll put it that way, either to emphasize the forsakenness or to emphasize the promise. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think we gain when we keep both of them in our minds at the same time, even though they don't both fit very well? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what we gain is uh, a fuller picture of the complexity of the figure of Jesus as portrayed in the gospel, that both of these mm -hmm. things are true of him. And indeed, I think the what Mark refers to as the mystery of the kingdom of God is very much centered on this question about the identity of Jesus as one who is both the embodiment of God in the world and who also uh, suffers and dies for our sake. Both of those things are true. And if we lean all the way to either side of that, we end up missing what the gospel writer is trying to tell us about Jesus. We have to read the whole story and the whole story is uh, virtually distilled into that psalm, really, mm -hmm. because both things are there. Well, I'm, I'm going to be singing the praise of this book, the whole interview, but even <laughs> without the rest of the book, this would be worth buying just for the hermeneutically careful reading of Matthew's version of the Passion, uh, especially when it comes to those passages that have been so often used for anti-Semitism, for really sort of, you know, sinister, supersessionist purposes. Yeah. Now, take a few minutes for this, because I know it's going to take some time. Uh, what realities surface when one listens for scriptural echoes in such terrifying passages as Pilate's hand-washing, the crowds calling for Jesus' blood to be upon them, those sorts of things that, I mean, I won't even say tragically, because that would be to blame the gods, Criminally, Christians have used those to commit crimes against Jews. Yes, um, uh, of course, the terrible moment in the Passion narrative in Matthew's Gospel is the moment where the crowd cries out, his blood be on us and on our children. Mm -hmm. uh, this is after Pilate has offered to release Jesus and the crowd demands his execution and, and says his blood be on us and on our children. And as you rightly say, that text has been used uh, in the history of Christianity's relation to Judaism as a warrant for uh, claiming that all Jews everywhere across time are uh, guilty and have blood on their hands for the death of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I do think that's a uh, a terrible misuse of the text, but it has, it has tragically, uh, well, you, <laughs> you rightly said you didn't want to use that word, and I, I, <laughs> I agree, criminally. Uh, it's been, I, I, te it, I teach tragedies professionally, so I'm careful with that word. <laughs> I see, yes, indeed. Well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, it's, it's been terribly misused uh, in the history of interpretation. So uh, the the pages where I write about the Matthew's passion narrative, I mean, first of all, I try to show that Pilate's act of hand washing is actually a kind of ironic reversal of what uh, the elders of Israel 
are supposed to do when a, when a dead body is found and no one knows who the murderer is. They are publicly to, the text says in Deuteronomy 21, to break the neck of a heifer and wash their hands over it while declaring our hands did not shed this blood, nor were we witnesses to it. And then there's a mm -hmm. prayer for absolution by God and, and saying, don't let this innocent blood remain in the midst of your people, Israel. It's, it's an amazing passage, really, Deuteronomy 21. And so when Pilate washes his hands, uh, he, <clears throat> he is taking on what the Deuteronomy tells the elders of Israel to do to indicate that they were not party to a murder that has taken place. But then when the crowd cries, his blood be upon us, of course, that is language that can be used for people assuming responsibility uh, for the death of someone. Uh, and I give some Old Testament passages where that occurs. But the thing that I think is also terribly important in Matthew is that there are other passages uh, in Scripture where the, the blood is what is sprinkled upon the people to initiate a covenant and to bring forth a kind of protection and blessing. The, the key text here is really Exodus 24, uh, where Moses is instructed to splatter the blood of sacrifice on the people and say, see the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is Exodus 24. And that, I think, prefigures what Jesus is saying at the Last Supper with the disciples, uh, where he says, uh, this is my blood of the new covenant. And so if, if being, as it were, covered in the blood of Jesus is a sign of forgiveness of sins in Matthew's narratives, there's an amazing dramatic irony going on when the people say his blood be upon us and on our children. I mean, they're clamoring for his death, mm -hmm. but within within the larger storyline, within the divine intention to have the blood of Jesus on oneself is a sign of welcome and forgiveness uh, that is offered to all. And so it's a, there's a, a, a deep complex irony, it seems to me at that point in the story. Um, it's an interesting question as to whether the author of Matthew intended that or not. He doesn't give us any very clear explanation of it at that point. But as readers, if we've been noticing how blood has been talked about leading up to this point, it seems to me it's hard to miss that irony. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would say is that even if the author of Matthew didn't intend what I'm suggesting here, uh, even if you don't find that convincing, it's still the case that it's in, it's sort of inappropriate in any sense to say that this means that all Jews everywhere and always are guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, it's It's a narration of something that happened as a historical event in the past, 
uh, in the early years of the first century in Jerusalem. And to say that somebody living many centuries later who's part of the Jewish community is somehow implicated in, in that is um, uh, it's just a, a it's, it's at least, a, I think, a wildly inappropriate inference. Mm-hmm. So on, on two levels, it doesn't work. But I actually think that Matthew has set up the story in a way that ought to give us as readers pause to ask what it would mean to be um, to have the blood of Jesus upon us. One of the threads that, that runs throughout this book is that in all four of the Gospels, and I, and I know that uh, because I read your uh, earlier book, um, Reading Backwards, and we talked about it on this show, uh, you're interested in sort of busting up the, I guess, conventional scholarly view that you've got low Christology in Mark and Luke versus high Christology in Matthew and John. Yes, um, that's right. And, you know, you, you point to some definite uh, echoes in Mark that you've already alluded to. The I will be with you sayings in Matthew, uh, you really kind of focus on in this chapter to show that uh, there's some definite identification of Jesus with Yahweh as presented in the Old Testament. So what kind of reception encyclopedia is involved in in hearing Jesus talk about persistent words and persistent presence? Right. Um, I mean, this, this promise that Jesus makes, um, well, first of all, Matthew even in the birth narrative, the story of Jesus' birth, uh, has the angel say to Joseph uh, that uh, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mm-hmm. So that, that Emmanuel designation for Jesus as the one who is God with us is, is there from the very beginning of the story. And it's picked up again in the promise that Jesus makes to the disciples in chapter 18 that uh, wherever two or three are gathered in my name there I will be with you but Mm -hmm. I think it comes this theme of Jesus continuing presence uh, as as the presence of God really comes to a head in the final scene of Matthew's gospel which is widely known as the great commission Matthew 28 verses 16 to 20, uh, where he tells the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, who can say that? Who could promise a thing like that? Um, And if you have your antennae up to ask, where is this promise? I am with you found in the Old Testament, it's just all over the place. There are many, many instances in which God speaks and makes exactly that promise, declaring that God is with either an individual or with the nation Israel. And so again, I've focused on just a few key examples of that in my chapter on Matthew. But uh, the first one I would point to would be uh, the account of Jacob's dream at Bethel in Genesis 28, uh, where God says to Jacob, know that I am with you 
and will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. And um, then Jacob wakes up and says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. So there's, you know, that language of God promising to be present and to fulfill promises uh, is there. Um, a, A slightly different spin on that motif is in the opening of the book of Jeremiah, where God calls and commissions the young Jeremiah and says that he's going to send him out to the nations. And he says, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Uh, And then the last example I point to is in the uh, prophet Haggai, uh, where the word of the Lord comes to the people. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Uh, And this is uh, a moment where God is encouraging them not to... Uh, despair, but to go forward in working on building, rebuilding the temple that was destroyed. So, you know, all of these motifs just suggest that when Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age, at the end of Matthew, it's it strongly reinforces Jesus' divine identity uh, as one who can promise that his words will not pass away. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever, and that he will be continually present to the community of his disciples as they go out to proclaim the message to all nations. Mm-hmm. I want to ask a question that occurred to you, uh, occurred to me while you were talking about that. I know that in modern English, there's a little bit of ambiguity when you when someone says, "I am with you," that can mean a promise that the person will be uh, in proximity you know, I am with you as opposed to being somewhere else. Or it can be, I am with you in the terms of alliance. So I am with you. I will not join the other side. I won't let you fight this alone. Is is that ambiguity present in the New Testament Greek? Or uh, is that something that, you know, really only becomes ambiguous in English? Um. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, you could sort of go through and look at it case by case and see. Mm-hmm. My my hunch, just off the top of my he- head, is that that expression, I'm with you, meaning um, that I'm on your side, mm-hmm. um, is a modern colloquial English development, although it's a, it's a very understandable development, you know, mm-hmm. moving from the literal to the metaphorical. Sure. Um I mean, I do think these promises of God's presence do indicate not simply I will be there in proximity to you, but Mm -hmm. I will be there to strengthen and support and um, fulfill what I have promised. I mean, that's built into all of the language of these things, you know, Jeremiah being sent out and possibly encountering opposition to his uh, prophesying. uh, God is saying, I will be with you. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of thing Jesus is saying to the disciples at the, as he sends them out. So it's, um, you know, it's an extension from one to the other. But I, I don't think that the, um, I, I don't think it's really a question of anything linguistically in, in mm-hmm. Greek as opposed to English. It's just a question of 
popular usage in English that has uh, probably extended the metaphorical sense. Okay, fair enough. And I, like I said, that, that question just now occurred to me, or I would have looked at passages like, the one who is not against us is with us, to see if that yeah. syntax is consistent. But I... Uh, that, that's uh -huh. something that neither of us prepped before this show, so we'll just leave it <laughs> for our listeners to go look up, or maybe yeah. I'll write a blog post sometime. Who's to say? Yeah, you should do that. Well, I, I want to turn to Luke here. Uh, I remember all the way back in undergraduate Bible courses talking about Luke's use of Isaiah's servant to situate Jesus within the salvation of history of Israel. What, I, what we didn't explore as Echoes, Echoes of Scripture does is the bits of Psalms that get mixed into Luke. So talk a little bit about the passages Luke uses to establish that mix. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the fascinating things that happens uh, at the very end of Luke's Gospel, um, when Jesus uh, appears to the gathered disciples in Jerusalem after the resurrection, he says to them, it is necessary that all the things written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms mm -hmm. be fulfilled. And, you know, people have puzzled uh, over uh, why the Psalms get brought in there because the phrase the law and the prophets is, of course, taken by itself a frequent description uh, of the content of what we call the Old Testament. Uh, and the explicit mention of Psalms is interesting. Some people have suggested it's because it refers to the uh, three-part division of the Hebrew canon into Torah, prophets, and writings, and that the Psalms would be um, pointing to that third part of, of the writings. But I think Luke has a special uh, interest in the interpretation of the Psalms, uh, particularly if you look in the apostolic sermons, the preaching that you find in the book of Acts, which is the second volume of Luke's work, over and over again, uh, the apostles are represented as quoting uh, various psalms in their preaching to proclaim the gospel. And are, those psalms are now reinterpreted so that uh, they are seen to refer to Jesus. So I think that the psalms are uh, subtly woven into Luke's story at numerous places. Um, you know, one of, one of the most striking ones uh, would be at the same place in the story of the crucifixion where Mark had quoted, uh, had Jesus quoting Psalm 22. Uh, Luke, Luke's account of the crucifixion doesn't have Jesus speaking Psalm 22. Uh, instead, he quotes a different psalm, which is Psalm 30, uh, and says, into your hands uh, I commend my spirit at the point of his death. Uh, so there's a, uh, you know, Luke is, is doing lots of different things uh, with the psalms. Psalm 118 is another psalm that uh, figures prominently throughout Luke and Acts. Um, so the, the subtext of all this is that at least many of the Psalms for Luke and, and I would say for other New Testament writers are reread in light of, uh, the story of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. They're reread as prefigurations of, um, 
Jesus' own uh, life, Jesus' own life, ministry, death, and resurrection. It's all sort of encoded there in the Psalms, and it can only be understood looking back in retrospect and, and rereading them after the events. Well, one passage I never thought of when I searched for Old Testament echoes was when Jesus tells potential disciples not to put their hands to the plow and look back. And yet, as your argument demonstrates, Jesus is putting a serious variation on the Elisha narrative when he issues that call. Tell our listeners about that passage. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, There's a, you know, just as I was just saying that Luke makes a lot out of echoes of the Psalms, there's also quite a few references more in Luke than in any of the other Gospels to the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Um, Elisha, of course, was the prophet who came along initially as a follower of Elijah and then inherited his prophetic office and mantle. Uh, But when um, Elijah first comes, uh, I'm sorry, when Elisha first comes to Elijah, uh, and wants to follow him, um, Elijah allows him, before he follows, to go back to his home and to uh, slaughter the oxen he'd been using to plow and to throw a big feast and a sort of farewell party before he goes uh, to follow Elijah as a prophet. Uh, and it's very interesting what happens Uh, when Jesus summons people to follow him near the end of chapter 9 of Luke, uh, one of the people he calls says, I'll follow you, but first let me go back and uh, say farewell to my family. And Jesus' response is to say, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So it seems to me that's a, a kind of a reversal it's not a kind of a reversal. It is a reversal mm-hmm. of that motif from the Elijah, Elijah saga. And I, I would say that the significance of that is it simply shows the radicalization of the call to follow Jesus. Uh, this is, this is certainly not business as usual, and it's not even just a continuation of the prophetic tradition of one prophet following another. Uh, but it's uh, it's a call to a really uh, radical commitment uh, as as the disciples who were called dropped their nets when they were fishing. Uh, Jesus says, uh, the call is now and don't look back. And uh, it seems to me that's what's going on there. I, I'm not sure if that's what you were pointing to, but that's uh, that's what I see going on there. Well, as I said, I mean, that that saying always puzzled me. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that the echo of the Elisha story makes it any less puzzling or any less challenging, I'll put it that way. Yeah. But, but at the very least, it gives some direction to the challenge. The challenge is whatever degree of devotion and commitment you imagine for the disciple of Elijah, even more so will a disciple of Jesus be called to that kind of commitment? Yeah. But there's another interesting thing there, because Elijah 
calls Elisha to leave the work of plowing. <clears throat> and Jesus' reversal of the metaphor suggests that he's calling disciples not to leave plowing, but to take up the task of plowing, uh, which has which might suggest that there's some ultimate planting and harvest that is to be expected as a result of their work and their preaching. So that's there's there's a number of wrinkles going on there. It's a very subtle inversion of the other the older story. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to I want to give you a moment to talk about the big picture in Luke. You call Luke's gospel a symphonic narrative a story with flashes of Old Testament throughout, but very little direct hermeneutical instruction from narrator to reader. How does that approach to Old Testament set this gospel apart from Matthew's? Right. It's one of the most fascinating things uh, that when you really look at how the individual gospels uh, point to the Old Testament, they do it in quite different ways. And this is one of the starkest differences Matthew, of course, repeatedly breaks in, as it were, as the narrator of the story to say, this happened in order to fulfill what was written by the prophet saying, and there'll be a, an explicit quotation from an Old Testament prophetic text. Uh, so Matthew is presenting these authorial voiceovers to give for the reader an explicit interpretation that links uh, the events of Jesus' life to a particular Old Testament passage. Luke almost never does that. There are just two or three instances in the whole gospel where he does it. Um, the, um, there is a citation of Isaiah 40, which is the passage uh, that's cited early on about uh, bringing comfort uh, to Israel, and but the uh, Luke nearly always, if there's an Old Testament quotation, it appears in the mouth of one of the characters in the story, not in the authorial discourse. Uh, and for the most part, Luke simply, as in the example we just talked about will subtly echo uh, the Old Testament passage or tell a story that parallels an Old Testament story, but he doesn't call attention to it. Uh, when Jesus raises the son of the widow at Nain in Luke 7, for example, uh, that's very much like the story of Elijah uh, bringing back from the dead the widow's son. Uh, but Luke doesn't stop and say, this happened in order to fulfill what was written. He just tells the story. Mm -hmm. So for a reader who knows the story, there are many resonances. But for a reader who has never read the story of Elijah, it would go right by and you wouldn't see any connection. Um, and that just happens again and again in Luke's gospel. Uh, so it's, it's simply... Uh, a matter of, of Luke's narrational style that he leaves it to the reader to figure it out. Uh, it's some, some interpreters have suggested, and I think there's a lot of merit in this, that one of the reasons that Luke writes that way is that he does expect that this gospel is going to be read and preached upon and interpreted 
for congregations by uh, teachers who do know the stories and can explain the connections. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we don't have uh, a teacher to explain the connections, uh, then we are uh, left missing a lot of these uh really interesting interplays between the Old Testament and the New. Very good, very good. Well, I want to turn to John here as we kind of turn the corner towards the home stretch. John's gospel often gets accused of abandoning Israel, partly because of the relative neglect of Israel as a narrative reality, and partly because of the use of eudioi, and we'll talk a little bit later about why you transli- transliterate pardon me, that word more often than not in this book. But you take special note of the temporality of John and specifically the importance of Israel's festivals in the Gospel of John. Talk to our listeners a little bit about the importance of those time markers in this fourth Gospel and their relation to Israel's scriptures. Right. Um, This for me is one of the things that came home much more clearly as I tried to think about Uh, how John is reading Israel's scripture. Uh, In contrast to Matthew, there are are fewer of these uh, formula citations where there's an explicit quotation of scripture, but uh, John does point many places in the story to uh, relating Jesus' activity around the liturgical cycle of Israel's festivals. There are three in particular that he mentions explicitly, those being the Passover and the Festival of Booths, uh, which is also uh, sometimes translated uh, tabernacles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the third is the Festival of Dedication uh, of the Temple, which we know as Hanukkah. Um, All three of those festivals are highlighted in John's telling of the story. And as you puzzle over this, it becomes clear that what John is really doing is he is presenting Jesus himself as the uh, fulfillment of that which these festivals symbolized. So that at the crucifixion, for example, uh, uh, it's we are told that Uh, not one of Jesus' bones was broken. And there's a clear connection there to the Passover lamb, where the instructions in Exodus 12 say that none of the bones of the lamb should be broken. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, also the uh, multiplication of bread story, uh, which is part of the whole Exodus Passover tradition, uh, is reinterpreted explicitly in John so that Jesus says that he himself is the bread which the manna symbolized. So that sort of thing happens again and again in John's gospel. And the interesting point about all of that is that I don't think it means that Jesus has negated the festivals in the sense of abolishing them. Uh, but rather, he's he has fulfilled them. He has he has brought them to their completion uh, in his own presence and his own life. Uh, so it, it's not a they're not 
negative rejections of these festivals. It's rather uh, showing them to be prefigurations of that which is brought uh, to its full reality in Jesus himself. Well, I want to talk about the Udioi for a moment. So take a, take a little bit of time here. Talk about their place as sort of analogs to rebellious Israel in the prophets. And on your way through, I mean, talk a little bit about why you choose to transliterate that term in your book when historically English Bibles have translated it simply as the Jews. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a term that occurs again and again in John in a way it doesn't. Uh, in the other Gospels, or at least mm -hmm. very, very rarely. Um, the, the problem with translating it as the Jews is that it suggests there's an opposition between Jesus, uh, who is uh, almost then inevitably understood to be himself non-Jewish. But in mm -hmm. fact, Jesus himself from all we can tell, was very much an observant Jew, and so were his followers. And so the Eudaioi represent some kind of a party within Judaism. They're often, it's often used in contexts where it's closely synonymous with the Pharisees or mm -hmm. the temple authorities. And some translators have suggested translating Eudaioi as Judeans, Mm -hmm. rather than Jews in order to try to make that point clear, uh, which would also uh, make the interesting contrast to Jesus and his followers who are Galileans as opposed to Judeans. Mm -hmm. uh, they're from the north and not the south. Um, but it's, it's hard to speak systematically about what this term, the Jews or Eudaioi, means in John. There are clearly some group, largely authorities who are opposed to Jesus. And so by not translating it and using the English word Jews, <coughs> but simply by transliterating the Greek term eudaioi, I've tried to leave that question open for readers uh, so that they don't immediately jump again to the conclusion that we're looking at a non-Jewish Jesus, because I think nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I I don't know where along the line I encountered the north-south uh, contrast as one way to interpret that, but I, I know that I've used that when I've taught Gospel of John in Sunday school settings. I've, you know, I've said that when you see the Jews realize that there's a D in it in the Greek, so, mm -hmm. you know, this is, the, this is the big city authorities as opposed to the hick disciples. Yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> that's right, yeah. So... Yeah. That's interesting. I, I want to talk reminds, about... Oh, go ahead, go ahead, of, sorry. Uh, you're from Georgia, am I right? Well, I actually grew up in uh, central Indiana, but my vowel sounds have betrayed me. Uh, well, I, I just... Uh, you, you, uh, your current position is in Georgia. At yes, least. absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the uh, Cotton Patch Gospels by mm -hmm. Clarence Jordan, uh, in which, in his translation, he has Jesus... If if memory serves, Jesus comes from Valdosta. Uh, Gainesville is where he's born, but yeah. Uh, is he born in Gainesville? Yeah, and I only know that because there's actually a stage musical of the Cotton Patch Gospel, and uh, something something's happening in Gainesville is one of my oh, favorite I numbers see. from it. 
But anyway, it's that's it, he's picking up on exactly the uh, uh, the contrast that you're talking about. So, you know, I think it, it's been many years since I've read this, but I think Jerusalem becomes Atlanta and Rome mm-hmm. becomes Washington. Is that yes, right? indeed. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the. It could be that there's that kind of. Uh, regional distinction and hostility between these different geographical locations. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about one of the striking images from the end of your book, and that is the biblical canon as a repertoire of faith, an intentionally diverse collection of faithful responses to Jesus. What kinds of benefits for the church, for the reader of the Bible, come from such a way of imagining the Bible, and what challenges present themselves within that model? Right. So the question is what benefits and what challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that one of the benefits of seeing these four Gospels that way is that we become more attentive to the individual witness of each of the four. We don't just mush them together in a blender, but we see that these are four distinct witnesses giving testimony to the identity and significance of Jesus, and it it awakens us to a kind of attentiveness to that, to see that we're not just uh, reading the same story four times, but that there are really distinctive points of emphasis. And that opens up for us the question of how we ourselves might be called to bearing witness to the identity of Jesus in ways that are distinctive to our communities and our historical settings. And we've got a model for that right there in the New Testament, that there are four uh, proclaimers writing, retelling Jesus' story, but doing it in ways that emphasize certain things more than others and bringing certain things into high relief in ways that are significant for their communities. So I think it it offers us a kind of encouragement uh, to do that in our own teaching and preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think those that's the main thing I would say about benefits. It's a question of attentiveness and opening up the possibility of adaptability of hearing the word as relevant to our time and place uh, in specific ways. The challenge that that presents, though, is it: the more you become aware of the distinctiveness and the diversity of the four Gospels, the more you have the question of coherence that looms large. Mm-hmm. Um, are they are they so different from one another that they actually may present points of tension or disagreement? Uh, are we forced somehow to? Uh, decide, you know, who got it right and who didn't. And one of the fascinating things about the earliest Christianity was that they insisted on two things. One, you can't just mush the Gospels together and have one Gospel harmony. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a composition like that called the Diatessaron, which was widely used uh, in early Syrian Christianity. But the great church tradition said, no, we don't want to mush them together into a harmony. We want to maintain the fourfold gospel with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each bearing their distinctive witness. <coughs> Pardon me. 
And then the other tendency that the church rejected was to say, well, we can't have four, there must be only one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was that was what the uh, second century heretic called Marcion wanted to do. He wanted to throw out all of them except Luke and say, Luke is the one true gospel. Uh, and in fact, Marcion didn't like all of Luke either. He wanted right, to cut, right. out, <laughs> cut out bits of it. <clears throat> and the church consistently said, nope, we've got four stories, and we're going to put them together, and all of them are... Um, edifying for the community and and they are all necessary to round out our understanding of who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that but it does bring up inevitably that challenge for discernment of discerning their coherence. And I don't think we can escape that. Uh, we've got a Bible, we've got a New Testament in which we do have the four stories and I for one am grateful that we do because I think they it gives us a, a a deeper sense of the roundedness of this unfathomable, mysterious uh, identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And what always impresses me about that reality is that uh, when you read early Christian documents about the biblical canon, a lot of times you'll see, okay, those other books you can read if you're literate, but the ones that are in the canon, those are going to be read out loud in the gathering, in the assembly. And so, I mean, in those early generations, the conviction was there that even those people who didn't know how to read were going to present them with four different Gospels. And that that Mm -hmm. strikes me as, I mean, such an impressive degree of confidence in in God's gift and confidence in the fact that God's gift does come in the fourfold Gospel. Right. Very much so. Well, I want to give you some time here at the end of our talk uh, to talk about something you mentioned in your introduction and that has occupied my thoughts ever since I read it. You composed the bulk of this book while undergoing cancer treatment, and you write about your scholarship in general and this book in particular as a vocation important enough to take on even while weakened by those treatments. So take some time here at the end to tell us, and I'm going to misappropriate C.S. Lewis here, about learning in hospital time. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, two, two things. First of all, just a, a, a small correction, which is that actually a good deal of the manuscript of this book had been written before I was diagnosed with cancer. But it was very much unfinished. Uh, okay, all right. Uh, I hadn't finished. I hadn't written all of the John chapter. I hadn't written introduction and conclusion, and and I hadn't done a lot of the filling in of uh, secondary literature and all that sort of thing. So, but uh, uh, the the book was conceived and along the way, and then I got. But this is where your question is pertinent. After I was diagnosed with cancer, it. My wife and I talked about it and felt it was really a high priority for me to try to finish this book, uh, which I was able to do, partly with the amazing help of the publisher and and, and some friends. Um, I would say, though, that the if anything, my cancer diagnosis brought into sharp focus for me the question of what finally matters. Why is it important to read these texts, to read them in their individuality? Why is it important to discern 
these deeper sources in the Old Testament for understanding who Jesus is and what does this call us to. Uh, this is not a book, I hope, that I have written to be clever or to impress somebody with how learned I am. It's a book that I've written because I have come in the course of writing it to feel that I have a deeper sense of who God is and who Jesus is as the embodiment of God, and that that's something, as I say in the last chapter of the book, that really calls us all to a point of decision. You know, do we believe this is true? And if it's true, it's not the kind of truth that you can affirm and simply say, yep, I guess that's a fact. It's the kind of truth that calls you into a relationship and into a commission to act and to carry out the work of continuing to tell the story to other people. So, um, you know, it, it's partly, I guess, the experience of, as you refer to uh, the Lewis, uh, the experience of hospital time is to say, you know, we're not just playing games here. We are dealing with texts that ask us the question, you, who do you say that I am? And call for a response. Uh, and so I was, I was newly uh, brought to a, a deeper awareness of the stakes of what we're dealing with in interpreting these texts and responding to them. Very good. Well, Richard, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about the Gospels, hermeneutics, Jesus, or anything else as we head for the door? Oh, my. Um, <clears throat> this is sort of the, uh, you know, the elevator speech about what the 400-page book is about. <laughs> but uh, I'll give it a shot. Uh, I mean, the first thing I would say is I really would want readers to come away with the sense that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. It is it is a part of the Christian Bible. Parenthetically, I would say that doesn't mean that we've sort of taken it away from the Jewish people or from Judaism. It, it is a text that in its origins... Uh, is the scripture of Israel. And I, I've repeatedly used that language in referring to it. Uh, but the church has insisted that this is part of the Bible and that the gospel and the identity of Jesus represents a coherent continuation and fulfillment of all that was there. And so a lot of the caricatures that are out there about the Old Testament are that uh, the God of the Old Testament is an angry God and the Old Testament is legalistic and harsh and we should just write it off and forget about it. And again, that's what that second century heretic Marcion also said, that uh, it's a different God, we can forget that. And I just think that that's totally wrong. And so the, the point number one would be Let's recover the Old Testament as our book, as a book in which God speaks to us. Uh, the second thing that I would say is that 
what God speaks to us in and through that text is precisely this uh, claim that I've referred to many times in this conversation, that Jesus is the embodiment of the God of Israel. There's a very common view in New Testament scholarship over the last couple of hundred years that it's really only the Gospel of John that has a doctrine of incarnation uh, and that the synoptic gospels simply present Jesus as a great prophet or teacher and that it's a much later development uh, near the end of the first century that you start having the church talking about Jesus as divine. And I just think that's totally wrong. I think if you read these texts with attention to how Jesus is portrayed as the embodiment and fulfillment of all that God was to Israel, uh, you see that they are presenting Jesus as divine. So that's the second point. Uh, if we've got time, uh, can I say a little more? Say what you're going to say. All right. The, the, the third thing I would say is that the effect of the kinds of readings that this book offers is to lead us into what I've called elsewhere a conversion of the imagination. It, it makes us realize how poetically rich the Bible is uh, and how if we're just sort of looking to read it as though it were a newspaper report, uh, we're, we're missing the artistry and the depth and the richness of the story. Uh, and it's not just that the, the gospel writers themselves were clever storytellers, but it's that God himself is the author of this incredibly complicated, rich tapestry uh, that goes all the way back to the creation and the stories of Abraham and Moses and David and all the prophets. All of this is woven together uh, in a way that is full of image and metaphor and prefiguration and fulfillment. It's just an extraordinary thing, and, and we need to be more aware of that. It, it's not something that can be easily boiled down into... Uh, a few slogans uh, in our preaching. We have to recover that fullness of the story. So conversion of the imagination. And then the last point is what I was just saying before about my own experience uh, in uh, realizing how serious this is, that we are, we're called by this text to uh, confession and testimony and a commissioning to go out and live in accordance with the truth that these texts offer us if we believe that what they say about Jesus is true. So th those would be the themes I would want to leave uh, your listeners with. Richard Hayes, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Well, I'm, you are welcome. It's been good to talk with you. And uh, I wish all who are hearing this uh, broadcast uh, that they too would be brought into uh, the joy and excitement of close reading of Scripture. Very good. Thank you, listeners, for downloading and listening to us today. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.